0: The Science Inside Podcast This is the Science Inside Science
1: Good evening and welcome to the Science Inside where we bring you the latest news and stories and events happening in the world of science and technology. I am your host Bridget Liberia and in this week's show we are looking at the source of life which is water of course. The human body is made up of 60% of water and we can go on about three weeks without food but really we would typically typically only uh, last for about three to four days without water now let that sink in all animals need water for survival but then what happens when the very thing that is meant to to give you life, causes you harm. In this week, um, we are going to be looking into a study which was carried out over a period of three years by the Council of Scientific and Industrial Research, which is the CSIR in short, which studied the quality of hand-dug wells uh, and surface area water in the community of Stinkvader in Hammansgral. The researchers found that the water was contaminated with pathogens, and now they are looking looking at various ways in which they can improve the quality of ground and surface water to eradicate the risks associated with untreated groundwater but this is a story for later on in the show On science, we discover why high-level mathematicians are duped by some aspects of their knowledge about the world and fail to resolve primary school-level subtraction problems. Now imagine that. And in our final story, we will hear about a new kind of pollution called nanopollution, which is taking over as far as water pollution is concerned. And then we will be speaking to a nanotechnologist also from the CSIR who is looking at how our common household products such as hair relaxers and cleaning detergents are polluting our ecosystems. But right now we go into the news.
0: This week's Science Hela.
1: In our news, making headlines for this week, cloud computing could unleash Africa's developmental potential and a Katle- Katlehong math whiz begs the VIT scholarship at a math competition. 17 African states presented their progress and achievement on reaching the Sustainable Development Goals At the United Nations earlier this year, the delivery of sophisticated information technology capabilities through cloud computing is set to play a crucial role in both innovation and efficiency. This technology will be key to reaching goals of doubling agricultural productivity, reducing road deaths by 50% and increasing water efficiency and reducing the rate of improvement in energy, among other things. Cloud computing capabilities are already in use in some parts of the world in ways that fit with the SDG's requirements. Cloud computing services delivered by the global companies which also exist in Nigeria, Kenya and Ghana. According to Afro- Associate Professor Willem Fourier at the University of Pretoria's Albert Lutuli Center, which is responsible for leadership of the South African SDG hub, industries such as agricultural and the banking sector are making use of this technology aligned with the UN's Goal 16. The Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation, HSCB Bank, utilizes cloud computing to detect money laundering. And in Nigeria, Interswitch uses cloud to help small businesses access project financing quickly while Jumo uses it to increase access to mobile money across Africa, which is also part of goal 17. In the... in agricultural field ibm's watson decision platform helps indian and brazilian farmers to make more informed decisions about what to plant through crop yielding prediction data and another authentic manner in which cloud computing is being used is through health map where information is being delivered over cloud where it makes it possible to monitor and respond to disease outbreaks But what is especially useful about cloud computing is that companies or organizations need not own computing infrastructure or data centers. Instead, they may opt for rental access to storage and applications, among other things, from a cloud service provider. And in turn, this would allow them to make access to sophisticated capabilities on demand without breaking the bank as far as building and maintaining IT infrastructure on site. However, unlocking the developmental potential of cloud computing will not happen automatically, argues Forree. He explains that four fundamentals, which are policies, investment in skills development, efficient security and privacy policies that protect data and, infra- and effective infrastructure must be put in place before cloud computing can really be harnessed to help drive development. He adds that these key fundamentals could bolster cloud in making it a powerful player in sustainable development if the right foundation is laid. There are several cloud computing projects underway in Africa which are being used to push countries towards attaining some of these goals. And a recent report by Microsoft displays a project by MTN Uganda that uses voice biometric software to handle pin resets. The groundwork is currently underway to enable cloud computing services to be universal in some parts of Africa. And South Africans saw its very first cloud center recently by Microsoft and another will be by Amazon Web Services, where a data center in Cape Town will be opened in 2020. The location of data centers will influence how efficiently data moves across networks as they will significantly improve the speed at which the cloud's capabilities are being accessed. Now moving along on to our second story. Grade 12 pupil Pila Nlimaklangu from Fumana Secondary School in Katehong was among thousands of learners from across the country who was awarded a scholarship to attend to study at VRT's After entering 2019's VITS math competition, Mahiangu was recognized as a distinguished learner from the Quintal 3 school under the secondary senior uh, category. Mahiangu, who is now dubbed a math whiz, said his interest in the subject was ignited from a very early age. He expressed that this scholarship will enable him to pursue his dreams of being an astrophysicist one day. The competition aims to cultivate talent among young people and to promote science, technology, engineering and mathematics, which are STEM uh, subjects, and contribute to mathematical development in the country. The math competition was launched last year. It targets learners as young as those in grade fours up to third-year university students. It has grown significantly in the year, where this year over 10,300 entries were received, compared to 2018's numbers, where only 830 students from 95 schools participated. Deputy Vice-Chancellor Research and Postgraduate Affairs Professor Zeblon Velagazi said mathematics is the foundation of all disciplines and that it ensures that talent is identified and nurtured as early as possible he also added that wits university carries the responsibility of supporting the promotion of science and technology and engineering and mathematics the wmc competition provides an equal opportunity for learners from diverse schools and backgrounds to participate in the only math competition in the country that does not charge an entry fee where learners such as Mahlangu are given the opportunity to compete with some of the best math brains in the country. And one of the founders of the competition, Dr. Muzi Manzi, said Mahlangu's hard work and consistency throughout the competition earned him the scholarship as a self-taught participant. Dr. Musa Manzi, and math scholarship winner uh, Professor, uh, Pila Matlangu were at the VITS uh, math competition earlier on uh, on the 7th of September. Now recapping your top stories for this week, cloud computing could unleash Africa's developmental potential and Gatlehong MathWiz bags VITS scholarship at a math competition. Now, we're going to be moving along to our first story for tonight, where we are going to be looking at um, nanopollution. And in this story, I obviously spoke to Florence Luhuzo from the CSIR. And in this story, she unpacks what they have been undertaking at the CSIR. And um, Florence has undertaken a nanopollution study indicating that nanosized contaminants which are engineered nanomaterial ingredients which are released into the natural environment actually cause instability and could possibly be harming the ecosystem. And some of these products are common household products such as sunscreen lotions, hair relaxers, lotions, cleaning detergents. And when these nanoparticles are released into the atmosphere or into the environment, they have the potential to cause nanopollution. Now, a total of 264 nano-enabled products were identified as containing engineered nanomaterials such as health and fitness products and electronics along with food uh, beverages. I spoke to Florence about these findings in this interview and this is what she had to say.
2: My name is Florence Leuso and I'm a PhD student under the CSIR and University of Johannesburg. So basically the study was for the nanotechnology sustainability whereby we were focusing on trying to investigate the market penetration of nano-enabled products. Those are products which have been enhanced with nanoparticles into South African markets. And thereafter we looked at their likelihood to be exposed into the environment followed by investigating if they have potential effects into the environment, it be positive or negative. And these products that you talk about that have the nanoparticles, what kind of products are these? Everyday products, for example, you find nanoparticles into your sunscreen, you find them onto your clothing, you find them into automotive industry, basically they're everywhere. You just have to know what you're looking for to find them. And then how do they get into our water stream? Basically, the nanoparticles are released during the entire life cycle of the products that is starting from production. When they produce them, the manufacturers, they discharge their waste into our wastewater, whereby they are not fully removed, and then they enter our freshwater system. Or during usage, when you wash your clothing, the nanoparticles are not permanently fixed on the clothing material. So they get released into a uh, water effluent, which you then discharge again to a sort of treatment plant. Oh, after use, for example, TVs, they also have nanoparticles. Whereby, when you discard it, it goes to the landfill. So over time, the nanoparticles will move from the television and then it will go into the landfill. So basically, they are released everywhere.
1: So when they are released into the landfill, meaning into the soil, into the soil, how yes. do they get now into our water?
2: For example, with the landfill, we know landfills. Our landfills, some of our landfills, they don't have liners. So obviously, if they don't have liners on the bottom, they're going to penetrate downwards, and then in most cases. From landfill will get contamination into groundwater, but the ones that we are focusing on was towards wastewater for this project. I'm sure you collected water samples. That is the next phase of the project where we'll be focusing on. We are going to focus on the beach because that is where the highly wood will be from the sunscreen side, and then also focus on wastewater from either from the product usage or from the manufacturers where they discharge their waste. So the areas in which you were just going around, trying to find the kind of research you're looking for, which areas did you go to? I can't disclose that, but then there were, where there's high usage of nanoparticles. Yes, was it in Kauteng? Our client, I would say, is DST, but then the manufacturers said it's not DST. It's either a research institution or the manufacturers themselves, Okay, but we can't disclose the names. Okay, because I'm just trying to find out how did you deduce the findings that you have
1: found? Were mm-hmm. you studying water samples, but you're saying it's the next phase. Uh, that is
2: the next so uh, the The part where we studied, because we did not know if there is any potential release, we first had to start with the release into our lab where we did a simulated usage to see if indeed this product, do they release or not? So, since we found out that they do release, it is then where we are going to the next phase where we are going to then track them along the wastewater, the real wastewater treatment plants. And yeah.
1: Okay, and then all of these chemicals that you have mentioned that you've talked about, what kind of health implications do they have when they are released into the water and we ingest that water over a long period of time?
2: In terms of their implications, that is the stage where we are at right now. We do have preliminary data, but we can't share that right now. Generally, we don't know the effects into the environment because this field is still at its infancy stage. But then into the human health, that is not our focus. The NIHS, National Institution of Health, I think they're doing the occupational side of the nanoparticles. Are you looking into how you're using a nanotechnology to cleanse the water? Uh, no, we are not looking at that. Our project focuses on the pollution. So basically, we are not trying to scare people away and say this is bad, this is bad. No, we're not saying we're not saying that. What we are trying to do is that we need to to find a balance between the application and the potential risk. Because based on the past experience, we know what happens with your as- asbestos and whatnot. So we are trying to shy away from that, where we say, let the application continue, but at the same time, we need to know the risk they pose. So that if there are risks, we put a stop to it. And then if there are no risks, say, okay, let's continue, let's produce more of these products and not have like a premature ban where people are saying, this are bad, this are bad, whereas there is no scientific data to support that argument. Can you explain the process?
1: How is nanotechnology being used to deduce, test or help you to come to these assumptions?
2: Oh, it's a long story, yeah. <laughs> the first part was, since we are working with nano-enabled products, we first had to test if there are particles in the products. Because the particles are inside the matrix of the product, the current technique did not allow us to directly characterize or do anything. So we first had to do some pre-treatment stuff whereby we had to extract or better weight, isolate the nanomaterials from the matrix of the compound. After that, we then used characterization te- techniques such as TEM and USM to characterize them to gather the size, the shape and all of those. And we used uh, ICP to to gather the quantity that they add into them. Those are the science techniques. Mm-hmm. So, for the nanopollutants, as we call them, those are the enms that are released. Because there are no standardized methods, we basically had to develop a method based on product by product. For example, with the ones where we investigated the textile as a source of contamination, as a source of nanopollution. We washed the textile as you would in your household and then whereas with sunscreen we simulated use of sunscreen when you apply it on your body and then you wash it off. So what is this textile that you speak about? It was a socks. So somebody's socks? Not somebody body stocks, but we purchase them from a retailer. Okay, and then you come and test them in the lab.
1: Yes. So when you speak about the sunscreen on somebody's
2: No, hand. we do not use women's, so we simulated. Basically, we developed a method that mimic what happens when you use your sunscreen. On the human body? Mimic. We did not use any yes, human we, body, yeah. Not, not on the human body, but what it would look like when there's the nanopollution. Yes, but we only looked at the end of that stage we did not look at the interaction between the sunscreen and the skin. So we only look at the last phase whereby we mimic as if you are washing it off. Oh, and then it goes into, into the wastewater. drainage system. Yeah, that's part where we looked at the interaction. We did not look at it. And then, what other um, nano did you look at? Those in the that are airborne? This study was commissioned for wastewater. Only wastewater. Yeah, airborne. You might find information on the people who are doing occupational. Because the thing is, we don't have enough scientific data to say this is the story even globally there is no data that says this is bad this is bad this is bad or this is good this is good so that is one of the reasons why we undertook this study how would you say we should utilize our wastewater better like when we
1: we recycle the water to throw some of the water onto our vegetables and things like that.
2: The problem with nanoparticles is, as much as it has been around, in terms of its environmental impact and whatnot, it's still new. Even the treatment plants, they were not designed to treat nanoparticles. So in most cases, you find that they absorb on the sludge. In most cases, it uses fertilizers, and the other one is released into fresh water. So me and you as individuals, there is nothing much we can do if we want to remove nanoparticles it lies at the treatment plant, of which they were not designed to do that. And that's another story for some day. But what's the importance of this kind of research then? Currently we have zero information about it, we don't have understanding. The level of knowledge in South Africa is low. So basically with our information we hope that it will influence some policy making decision whereby guidelines can then be generated and then again we are not saying let's stop nanotechnology, no. But instead we are saying since we know that when the nanoparticles is incorporated on this location Then when you use it, this amount is released, then how about then we go back and we design a smart nano-enabled product whereby either we reduce the amount we we add or we change the location. So those are the output we hope to reach by the end of this project. Stay
0: curious. Stay informed. Stay on the Science Inside. This is the Science Inside. Science Inside. Inside.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Science Inside. I am your host, Bridget LePere. And earlier on, I spoke about a um, study that was carried out by scientists at the CSIR. And now we are going into this research study with Voter uh, Leroux. Now, microbiologist Voter Leroux and his team from the Water Center at the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research, which is the CSIR, have just concluded a water research project spending three years on hand dug wells from the Stinkwater community in the far north region of Pretoria. What they discovered from over a 100 samples uh, that were collected over a period of two years was not as surprising as people in the area and neighboring areas had previously complained about the water quality. Now, many households in Stengwater, they own hand-dug wells as a main water source as they do not have access to piped water infrastructure. But the team found pathogens such as E. coli and nitrate indicating contamination. Voter explains.
3: Our study focused on the Stengwater area. It's right next to adjacent to Amundskaral. And possibly there could be similar groundwater-related quality issues elsewhere in the adjacent areas, but our study really only focused on, on the that area. And what we did is we took water samples for a two-year period. We went basically on a monthly basis and collected 100 or 200 water samples over, during that time. We analyzed for different pollutants. Some of them might be biological or microbial pollutants. Others are chemical pollutants. And so we looked at that and we found that In terms of the groundwater for for water, there were often problems in terms of too much bacteria, too much E. coli, which is an indicator of uh, faecal pollution or sewage pollution. And there was also one or two of the chemical parameters that were not within the specified levels, that being fluoride, but only in a limited number of cases. Nitrate in the majority of cases, in the majority of samples, nitrate was elevated.
1: And how would you say these substances got into the water because um you're talking about groundwater so you'd assume that the water is pure coming from the ground up is it from the
2: piping okay
3: so so especially when the groundwater um, is very close to the surface so the aquifer that's what we call the groundwater the section that holds the, the groundwater the aquifer is very close to the surface um it's it's very much at risk of being polluted from surface water, especially after rainfall events. Um, you do get a, that some of the pollutants get flushed into the system. Um, so, so, if, for instance, like in the Stinkwater area, there's no formal sanitation systems, no flush toilets, um, you have pit latrines. Then some of the pollutants can move from the pit latrines, um, and they only have to move through a few meters of soil to reach the groundwater, and in that way, it, it pollutes them.
1: Groundwater collected from the hand dug wells is rainfall water which has been condensed, soaked and deposited into the water table where the water is stored. Wells require a deep surface of soil or soft rock for access to the water. And in Stengvater, many of the rocks in the area are very, very old. This means that the rocks have had sufficient time to break down over time due to weathering or erosion. As such is the case of Stingwater, where community members have had a very long history with hand-dug wells. In areas with very hard rock surface areas, one would likely find a borehole instead of a water well. But the issue with these DIY wells is that sometimes they are too shallow or too close to the surface area posing risks for contamination.
3: When the groundwater is very close to the surface, so the aquifer, that's what we call the groundwater, the section that holds the, the groundwater, the aquifer is very close to the surface. It's very much at risk of being polluted from surface water, especially after rainfall events. You do get it that some of the pollutants get flushed into the system. So. If, for instance, like in the Stenforter area, there's no formal sanitation systems, no flush toilets, you have pit latrines. Then some of the pollutants can move from the pit latrines, um, and they only have to move through a few meters of soil to reach the groundwater, and in that way, it, it pollutes them. So that's not the only way that areas can get polluted groundwater. Just some areas just. Contain nitrate at naturally high levels because of the soil geology in the area, but probably for an area like Stinkwater, it's probably heavily influenced by sewage pollution
1: lack of infrastructure has led many community members to resort to dependency on pit latrines and water wells for ablution and access to clean water some wells in the area span a period of centuries and due to some of these wells being built very closely to ablution facilities or too closely to the surface these wells are susceptible to pollution
3: so the samples that we collected most of them were quite clear a few of them had add a bit of sand particles or or some debris in it, but just looking at them, they look fine. But it's when you go to the lab and you analyze that you do find that there are certain problems. We find E. coli in the water now. E. coli tells us that there's probably sewage pollution, so... The bittertrenes that are also in the same yard probably has an effect on the water quality of the hand-dug well. So we, we found uh, E. coli, which tells us that there's bacteria or maybe viruses in the water. And we also found that some of the, the chemical parameters, like nitrate, were too high.
1: Stengvato's neighbouring township, Hamanskral, receives its water supply from the municipality and for over two decades now, this community has been gripped with water supply and quality issues. When the Democratic Alliance took over the city of Twane, it was appointed with ensuring the delivery of clean and safe water to this community – which they have not delivered so far. To this day, the DA states that the water is safe for consumption despite previous studies by the CSIR disapproving the use of this water. Johannes Lidwaba, who is a resident of Hamanskral, shares his experience on the quality of water in the area.
0: We've been complaining, but has or any help so metse mm-hmm. receiver has many nice brown na a green Has a to cook or to drink but you can only wash ka fail okay to be honest metse ya ke khale re complaina ka so our strategy, like, no habidisa. If maybe we got no choice to buy water, but habidisa. But still, it smell is no bad thing. No change a color, aba at least white yana. What's fara media? No like ha the same limits along gore asiya. Khono bone gore ashiya something mo matsong a hao. Khala thing it's like seretse. O bulela pompo a tso jole ka seretse. Sometimes ke ama green angame that thing. I mean you can't even drink that water. That's why ke ri reka So metsi ara ba ri tsapela go unless if we, we don't have a choice. Ra boila and si go ritetsa yang kopile. So Rekamit, Mitsa ara in ten rand, like ten liter. Obviously, the still water rekamit, ten rand, and every week rekamit, Untung rekam, almost six bottles of ten liter. And then um, those who don't have money, I guess they don't have a choice but to drink Mitsi ao. The danger of this water, you, 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 Ian Zahor Watawang at the and we were petela hospital. I remember last month, six, eight or more community members. Panel with that, that was messy. Babbala and then by were going to hospital. After that, what try a horror, but we already track at the messy. But the track at the messy day, first week, it was on the But the next week, there was no change. It was about we were giving it on horror cream. Smells salty. It's almost one year and a half having this issue. We did complain, we did went to quality, but we haven't found any help.
1: The South African Human Rights Commission gave the DA administration until last week Friday as a deadline to deliver clean water as this plight is referred to as a human rights infringement. According to Voter, these may be the causes of the appearance in the texture of the water in Hammanskralh.
3: So there's so many reasons why water would come out of a tap looking dirty. It could be that there's some metals in, like iron could typically lead to discolored water. But it could also be that there's what we call colloidal, So it's fine sand particles that just don't settle out. I typically find this in some rivers. Look at the Orange River sometimes, and it's just brown all the way up to where it goes into the ocean a lot of the time because there's colloidals and they just don't settle out. Put it this way, sometimes the things that cause the water to look dirty are really not health problems. Iron, like for instance, if there's too much iron or too much colloidals, it's not necessarily a health problem. You could drink the water and you could be fine. So it's also a bit of a perception.
1: Young developing developing children who grow up drinking this kind of water may develop a number of health complications and conditions not limited to the most evident condition known as fluorosis, which is an over excess of fluoride acquired through the water which turns developing teeth brown or causes overgrowth in the enamel. Other conditions include cholera, diarrhea, and many other conditions. Voter explains.
3: If there's microorganisms that could potentially be pathogenic so they can cause disease in the water, if you were to ingest that water, consume it, you'd be at risk of getting infected with disease-causing organisms. Typically what that would lead to would be cases of diarrhea, sometimes it will just be a few people in a community might have it, especially children which are really susceptible might have it, but you can get bigger outbreaks as well that are waterborne outbreaks maybe stuff like cholera and stuff. I'm not saying it's the case for this area, but certainly there's a risk in terms of microorganisms, if they are present in the water, that they could cause disease. You could also, if there's chemical pollutants like nitrate, you could get other adverse health effects. One of the potential health effects that that could be present when nitrate is present is a condition called methemoglobinemia. And it's a condition where the nitrate gets converted into other compounds, actually nitrite, and that bi- binds to the red blood cells in your body and reduces the ability of your blood to carry oxygen. Obviously, that can make you very sick and it can even lead to death. But that's usually at very high levels. Typically, what we f- find in the springwater area is lower levels of nitrate, but they still do exceed the specified maximum levels.
1: In an interview with E! News Channel Africa, the ANC's Dr. Kosi Maiba noted that a sum of $600 million was invested in a new water treatment facility during former Tswane Mayor Kosi Ntsuramokopa's tenure. One was erected, but the Democratic Alliance's administration has failed to commission for one and has not uh, resourced it with human capital to ensure that the water is purified.
4: The
0: Democratic Alliance came in 2016 and said to people where they govern their are clean. But to this day, they have not commissioned a, a water treatment okay. plant that was put there by the previous ANC government. The DA simply had to come in Put engineers and commission it and make sure that it works so that it can purify the water. Because the infrastructure, world-class treatment plant, there already. They failed to do that for three years. To this day, the Human Rights Commission told them that to deny people clean water, it's actually an abomination on their human rights. So as the African National Congress, we have bottled this water. We're going to give and supply bottled on-site 120 bottles. We are going to give them to each cancer in cancer. If they cannot drink this water, why then do they want the people on the ground to drink the same water?
1: The community of Stingwater also depends on water delivered by municipal trucks and often the water supply and intervention is not enough, according to Larue. And though the water has been declared unsafe for consumption in the interim, these are the following procedures one may undertake to purify the water.
3: It's possible for them to minimize the risk in terms of the microorganisms present in the water. They can do this by boiling the water or using jig to chlorinate the water. So it certainly is possible to minimize or mitigate those risks. In terms of the nitrate that's present in the water, the only way that they can currently do that is either by reducing the amount of water that they consume. So you cannot drink a lot of the water if it does contain nitrate. That's one, one way, and they can potentially also dilute it with water that doesn't contain nitrate. And, and then they can, they can maybe use some of the of it for cooking and drinking, but still, limit the in- intake of that water, even if you do chlorinate. or Unfortunately, you get nitrates in with your diet as well. So if you had a high nitrate diet, typically canned foods contain high levels of nitrate. So if you were to eat lots of nitrate-containing food, like canned foods, then... Just a little bit of water containing high levels of nitrate might put you at a big risk of developing that condition that we call methemoglobinemia. However, if your diet was slightly different and you were actually to eat lots of vegetables that contain vitamin C and antioxidants, those reduced the risk of developing that condition. So then you might be able to get away with drinking more water. So it's very difficult to say 8 glasses, 10 glasses, or 2 glasses. However, what I can tell you that at the levels that we found in Stinkvarna, the levels of nitrate, which was roughly about 23 milligrams per liter on average in the hand wells, wells, there certainly is a risk and you need to reduce your consumption of, of that water unless it's treated.
1: Leroux says the CSIR is also looking at ways in which nano-engineered clays and plants can be utilized to remove nitrate from the water in order to purify the water that has been treated with chlorine and other chemicals, which are unable to remove nitrates and the over-excess of fluoride. So that was uh, the story that we had with um, uh, Mr. Leroux. And right now we will go into a short break. Thereafter, we will return with Unscience.
0: You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events.
1: Welcome back to The Science Inside. And right now we are going into unscience. We have left the best for last. And tonight we, I am joined by Skumbuzo Zondo, a colleague of mine, and he's going to help me deliver unscience for us. So, Skumbuzo, Right. Uh, I want you to tell me what your experience has been like or what your relationship with mathematics is like.
4: Well, currently, firstly, greetings to everybody at home and thank you for having me, Bridget. Sure. My experience with mathematics is not so good because I didn't perform so well at school, but that could be based on other factors.
1: Okay, so mathematics is thought as the zenith of abstract thinking, but researchers from the University of Geneva in Switzerland and the University of Bourgogne, Franche Comté in France, have demonstrated our ability to solve mathematical problems uh, and how it is influenced by non-mathematical knowledge, which often results in mistakes. What?
4: This is ridiculous. But how? Don't you... Don't you think that the... Like you'd
1: need math math knowledge to do the mathematics. Basically. Yeah, well, maybe not entirely. Findings published in the Psychonomic Bulletin and Review indicated that some aspects of their knowledge about the world could fool high-level mathematicians, causing them to fail solving primary school-level subtraction problems. It follows that this bias needs to be factored into the way in which mathematics is taught at school.
4: Well, I suppose then that I would have probably performed better in class if this was considered during my time. However, I'm fascinated by how teaching it would, in this case, be inclusive of the bias that
1: um, that That would probably
4: change the narrative.
1: Yeah, so math teaching at school usually draws on examples taken from everyday life it's unbelievable but it's true be arithmetically when adding oranges and apples to make a pie or when dividing an equal amount of marbles among primary school children science suggests that we master mathematics with the help of concrete examples but the extent of these examples used determine and affect a child's ability to use the mathematical concepts in new contexts
4: Mm, okay i totally get it but how did they carry out the study
1: The researchers well then tested the degree to which our worldly knowledge interferes with mathematical reasoning by presenting 12 problems to two distinct groups. The first group was made up of adults who had taken a standard university course, while the second being of high-level mathematicians.
4: Okay, and?
1: One, when faced with numbers, our brains tend to represent them mentally, either as sets or as values on X's, right? Uh-huh. An FPSE professor, Emmanuel Sender, devised six subtraction problems a pupil between the ages of 10 and 11 could easily do. These were presented by sets and six others that could be presented by X's. Apparently, all of them had the exactly the same mathematical structure, the same numerical values, and the same solution. Only the context was different. These problems were presented in two different types of contexts. Half of the problems involved calculating the number of animals in a pack, the price of a meal in a restaurant, or the weight of a stack of
4: dictionaries. Okay. So you mean like those math literacy questions we we used to get, where they would, know, they would say something like, uh, Mandy has 14 cats and dogs, and Sarah has two cats fewer than Mandy. And so how many dogs does um, Sarah most probably have? Yeah. A couple of questions.
1: Yeah, so you, you actually grasp, This concept. So the type of problems required calculating how it, how long it takes uh, building a cathedral, to which floor an elevator arrives, or how tall a Smurf is. Sentiments uh, or statements that can be presented along a vertical or a horizontal axis. For example, when a lazy Smurf climbs onto a table, he attains fourteen centimeters. Right, Uh and Grumpy Smurf is two centimeters shorter than lazy smith and he climbs onto the same table what height does grumpy smith attain are you going to do this calculation in your head school
4: yeah but uh, i'd rather not give the answer in this case
1: (laughs) but you actually may surprise yourself and get it right if you try however these mathematical problems can all be solved via a single calculation just a simple subtraction
4: and what is the formula
1: this is the natural way of solving problems, right? So presented on an axis, 14 minus 2 would equal 12, right? Mm-hmm. In the case of the Smurfs, rather, but the perspective needs changing for the problems describing sets where we automatically try and work out the individual value of each mentioned subset, which is impossible to do. Wouldn't you agree?
4: Yeah,
1: And Jean-Pierre Thibault, a researcher at the University of Bourgogne-Franche-Homte, explains that, for instance, in the problem with animals, we look to calculate the number of dogs that Sarah has, which is impossible, whereas the calculation 14 minus 2 equals 12 provides the solution directly. So, basically, the scientists relied on the fact that um, the answer would be more difficult to find for the animal problems rather than the smurf problems despite their shared mathematical structure
4: well this sounds simple and for the first time I think a mathematical uh, uh, related conversation sounds riveting tell me more please
1: well they continued to present the 12 problems to both groups of participants each problem was accompanied by its solution and the participants had to decide whether it was correct or if the problem couldn't be solved
4: so, what was the outcome?
1: The results were rather astonishing to say the least. 82% of the ordinary group of participants answered correctly for the access problems in comparison to only 47% for the problems involving sets. While in 50%, of the cases, the respondents thought there was no solution to the statement, reflecting their inability to detach themselves from their knowledge about the elements mentioned in the statements.
4: Well, I'm rather interested in this case regarding the mathematicians who got the sums wrong.
1: Well, the experts, 95% of them answered the access problem correctly, a rate that dropped to only 76% for the sets problem. Only one out of four times, the experts thought there was no solution to the problem, even though it was a mere primary school level problem. And it even showed that the participants participants who found the solution to the set problems were still influenced by their set-based outlook because they were slower in solving these problems uh, rather than the excess problems. Mm
4: -hmm. Okay, this is quite fascinating
1: fascinating indeed the result highlighted the critical impact our knowledge about the world has on our inab- our ability to use mathematical reasoning rather and the experts say that we would see that a mathematical problem has a real impact on performance including that of experts and it follows that we can't reason in totality um, or in abstract manners. So the researchers also added that the educational initiatives need to be introduced based on the methods that help pupils learn about mathematical abstraction. There they were enabled to detach themselves from the non-mathematical intuition. Mm -hmm. Mm, So what do you think about the study?
4: Well, currently if I had somebody to simplify mathematics for me, to this extent, I would have done better. But then I hope this information does get to the right ears and they do use it accordingly.
1: Well, I hope so too. But thank you so much for joining me tonight, coup. Oh, good. Okay, then. This story was sourced from thesciencedaily.com and the music is from Ben Sounds. It was unusual, unlikely, unscience.
0: Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. This is the Science Inside.
1: Welcome back. This is it, the Science Inside. And on tonight's show, we spoke to water and nanotechnology experts from the CSIR who both spoke about the importance of their studies and what each of their departments were doing in counteracting the pollution caused by environmental contaminants, which flow into our water streams and obviously end up in our bodies, as in the case of uh, the Stinkwater community. And of course, Florence uh, Lihuzzo, who spoke about her study on nanopollution and where they are in a study uh, as far as assimilating the extent at which nanomaterials are affecting or can affect ecosystems. But there was all on tonight's show, thanks to all of the guests who were featured on tonight's show, namely Florence Lhuza, Voter Leroux, Johannes Ledwaba, who is a res- resident in the community of Hamanskral. Last but not least, our team behind the scenes is uh, Gamohelo Dineko and uh, Skumbuzo Zondo. And of course, how can I forget tech is by Gudwano Serrani. You can find our podcast on vits.journalism.co.za forward slash science. And on social media, you can find us as uh, The Science Inside. You can also just tweet us and just Write down the hashtag Science Inside, and you can find us on uh, at Vow FM. The Science Inside is produced by the Vitz Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. That was all for tonight. Good night.
0: Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay
1: on the Science Inside. The Science Inside Podcast. podcast.